At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All music you hear in this episode of the American Muse podcast is supplied exclusively by Naxos Records. To hear and purchase full works, please go to Naxos, N-A-X-O-S dot com. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. And by the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. topic is William Henry Fry and his Niagara Symphony. We will discuss this little-known composer from 19th century America, his ties to Europe and Romantic-era music, his career as a journalist, and his peculiar definition of what a symphony actually is. We will also hear the unique story of New York's Crystal Palace, run by none other than P.T. Barnum, for which Fry's Niagara Symphony was written. So, William Henry Fry, born a Philadelphian in 1813 or 1815. Well, it seems no one really knows for sure, but either is close enough for us, obviously. Though it might seem a foreign concept to us, being able to hear great music in the 19th century was completely dependent on an orchestra or opera company actually putting on the performance geographically nearby on an evening when you could go assuming you could afford a ticket. No internet, YouTube, obviously. Philadelphia was a great place for Fry in this regard. In the 1830s, a French opera troupe toured to Philly and performed French opera sung in French, in addition to some other standards of the repertoire, like Rossini's La Gazzaladra. Multiple Italian opera companies came through with similar programming. These and many other experiences available to him in Philadelphia led to Fry not only taking composition lessons, but also having some early overtures and even operas performed. 
Professionally, however, Fry took up the family business of journalism. His father founded the Philadelphia National Gazette, and later, working as a foreign correspondent for the Public Ledger and New York Tribune, Fry was able to spend three years in Paris, six years total in Europe. Well, being the industrious man that he was, he took advantage of that time, soaking in as much music and culture as he could. It also seems he soaked in a little arrogance. He constantly compared Paris to Philly and America generally, particularly in this quote. Again, this is a quote. Fry is very cutting. Philadelphia is a Quaker abortion as regards plan. New York, a Dutch monstrosity. Boston, a puritanical fright. When the groveling, penny-scraping, health-destroying folly that blotted out the only dash of beauty born of the narrow spirit which planned Philadelphia, the center park, which changed that pretty little circle of verdure and trees into four-square whatnots, which are a disgrace to Philadelphia and human nature, when that beggarly abortion which should be gibbeted as a criminal against good taste shall be changed. A new birth shall be given to democracy and the strength and splendor which royalty has conferred on Paris. Social justice shall spread over our community. Perhaps if the Tuileries Gardens were in Philadelphia, some money grub would vote for cutting it up to admit vehicles through, or worse even, for city lots. As you might have figured out, this man has a lot to say. At any rate, Fry did return to the U.S. and lived out his life as news editor, critic, and composer. He relentlessly criticized audiences for wanting European-centric only programming, while instead he championed American music. He even found time to do a series of music history lectures. As for Fry's compositions, many were lost upon his death. What remains is more than enough to fill out a musical sketch of the man at any rate. Notably, Fry wrote an opera titled Leonora, and upon its production in 1845, it became the first grand opera written by an American composer. The first. He additionally wrote two other operas, Aurelia the Vestal and Notre Dame of Paris. An interesting quote by Fry on opera. Rightly to hear and enjoy an old opera, we should place ourselves so far as possible in the circle of thought, artistic and general, of the period at which it was produced. With such mobility, we may, to a degree, see with the eyes and hear with the ears of generations gone by. You know, this kind of thinking actually endears me to this man. For me personally, I prefer productions of Mozart operas with wigs and corsets. It's just a personal thing. It's not for everyone. And the modern thinking is to update all visual elements. But the dated scenery and costumes help me personally to enter the moment and the time period and disassociate from the present. Fry wrote as many as seven symphonies, or at least that's what he calls them. They are really tone poems, each one heavily programmatic, much shorter than you might expect for a symphony, and usually not structured, much like any symphony I know of. More on that later. The two most famous symphonies Fry wrote, the Niagara Symphony, written in 1854, which we will discuss shortly, and the Santa Claus Christmas Symphony, which he wrote in 1853. The Christmas Symphony is quite unique. Fry calls for a saxophone, which is potentially 
the first use of the instrument in an orchestral setting, as in ever, as in the saxophone had only been invented 10 years earlier, and no one had yet thought about putting it in a symphony. The piece itself is full of instrumental solos, even one for double bass. Not quite as memorable as Mahler's bass solo in the third movement of his first symphony, but still unusual. The piece is very engaging and dramatically ends with Adeste Fideles, or as we better know it, O Come All Ye Faithful. As I mentioned, Fry wrote Niagara for a grand musical congress at New York's Crystal Palace. Now, the Crystal Palace has an interesting though short history. It was erected in 1853 and burned down in 1858, so not much could come of the five years it existed. It was patterned after London's own building of the same name. This one was built with iron and glass in the shape of a Greek cross with a 100-foot dome atop the center. This performance was, in fact, the second opening of the Crystal Palace after the initial opening ceremony was apparently a dud. It included hours of musical performances and political speeches, including an appearance by President Franklin Pierce, in addition to the art and sculpture exhibition. In Fry's review of the original, he doesn't hold back either. The various speeches delivered on the occasion were attentively listened to by a select body of hearers, but the immense space at the Crystal Palace with its two floors and the multitudinous partial partitions prevented the great mass present from hearing. The bad and vulgar American habit of talking and walking on such occasions added also to the difficulty of catching what the speakers said. The effect produced upon the audience by the music foreshadows the success of keeping up that source of enjoyment for the million as long as the exhibition may be kept open. In other words, Fry is saying, why would they care about the music as long as the politicians get to speak? So this grand musical congress for the second opening was to be an overwhelming event. One review at the time described it as, quote, uniting in one grand ensemble the elite of the instrumental celebrities of Europe and America, together with the great choral societies, solo singers, etc., of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Cincinnati, etc., etc., to the number of some 1,500 performers. And of course, this kind of grandiose event could only come from the mind of one P.T. Barnum, the newly appointed president of the Crystal Palace. Now, as a featured composer of this second event and a music critic for the New York Tribune, Fry got completely on board. He even elevated the event and the building to the level of the Greek gods, asserting that the Crystal Palace, quote, may be considered the Olympian festival of the 19th century. Uh, yeah, well, that's a way to promote it. Fry was to have two pieces performed on this concert, the Adagio from The Breaking Heart and our subject of the day, the Niagara Symphony, which does in fact bear the dedication composed for the Musical Congress at the Crystal Palace of New York. However, since there is only one known review of the performance, and that review only mentions the Adagio, we are not even certain that the Niagara Symphony was performed at all. Well, I guess that's technically true, but there is no reason to doubt that it wasn't performed either. And despite that, as we will see, the piece itself is thematically 100% in line with the event and all of its pomp and frills. The Niagara Symphony is certainly large in effect, meaning to evoke the visual and oral scene of the falls themselves. 
but it is by no means one of Fry's largest works, like his opera Leonora and the more well-known Santa Claus Symphony. What the piece does is showcase Fry's penchant for experimentation and visually evocative writing. The first rarity is the orchestration, get ready for this, calling for five tempanists playing 11 drums. Then, just as oddly, he calls for two bass brass instruments, specifying tubas, ophiclides, bombardones, using very high register. I had to look up the bombardone. It's essentially the bottom range trombone with the same range of a tuba. I have no idea if at the time that was a feasible thing to ask for, but certainly today we would just use two tubas, similar to replacing the two serpentines Berlioz calls for in his Symphony Fantastique. Now, let's hear excerpts of the piece itself. A dull murmur of timpani rolls begins the piece, and as if turning a small bend in the water to take full view of the falls, the music builds quickly to a grand climactic fanfare. Just as quickly, this climax erupts into confusion, running chromatic scales, even in the trumpets, possibly representative of the rocky ride over the waves toward the falls.
after yet another climactic crash of waves, maybe, the sound finally calms, opening up to a surprisingly stately contrasting theme, though the timpani rolls persist beneath throughout, foreshadowing what is to come. moment of compositional brilliance, Fry creates a way of ending this stately theme and moving back to the drama of the falls, all while keeping the listener visually in the boat, so to speak. Before fully ending the section, there are four rousing interjections, followed by stillness. Only the ever-rolling timpani are heard. Only then, after rising tremolo and brass chords, does he finally arrive at a recap of the beginning fanfare. we get another moment of real creativity and real brilliance from Fry. After repeating much of the opening material again, at a moment of tight dissonance and tension, Fry creates a distant-sounding echo of this moment and quietly ends the piece in oblivion. Seriously, in the score, Fry specifically says of the ending measures, retard these bars very much at the second time of playing them to produce a continued monotony of effect. 
this is truly a unique piece. Even now, even if you've never been to Niagara Falls, Fry's work is engaging and very vivid. Like I said earlier, no matter what he calls it, this really isn't a symphony, or at least as designed by Haydn and perfected by Beethoven. And Fry spent enough time studying music in Europe, in America, that he knew very well what a symphony was. Maybe it was more of a marketing idea, or possibly it, he had intended the pieces to be longer originally, I'm not sure. At any rate, the entire piece is worth enjoying in totality, as it is, no matter the title. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.